Hello and welcome to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, the founder and director of Liminal, Louise Fitzjohn. podcast is an opportunity to speak to the contemporary artists I'm exhibiting in my Margate-based art gallery. With an exciting program of solo and group exhibitions, hosting this podcast is a fantastic way to delve deeper into the artist's practice and to probe their innermost thoughts about their exhibitions. Liminal Gallery was founded in April 2021 and works with contemporary artists currently practicing across the UK and Ireland, showing the incredibly diverse creatives that are based here. I've been working in the art world for over a decade and I'm incredibly passionate about fully supporting the artists that I work with and I spend most of my time trawling through social media to find artworks which blow my socks off. The artists I work with have an approach which I haven't seen before, a unique talent which spans across the mediums. I'm so excited to share these artists with you as we have in-depth conversations exploring the artists' lives and works into what makes them tick and what gets a ticking off. So I hope you'll join me both on this podcast and down in Margate where you can see the exhibitions of these artists in person. I'm delighted to share that the guests on the 11th episode of Liminal Gallery podcast are contemporary artist Andrew Tor and director of the AOP Gallery, Gemma Pepe. For the very first time, I'm co-curating an exhibition in Liminal Gallery with the newly formed the AOP Gallery, and this will be their first exhibition since their inception earlier this year. Andrew Tor's works are oil-painted landscapes, but not as they have previously been known, developing his own unique language, Tours paintings have been created at dusk and studied the city from afar. Seen from the commons and parks across London, the city becomes a blurred fizz of lights melting into abstraction while simultaneously stirring up the vibrancy of a city that never sleeps. The real star of this series is the unique sky glow, an incredible phenomena whereby artificial light transforms the atmosphere of the scenery, setting its vivid colors across the clouds above the city. Seen from afar, Tor has been able to capture this unique colouring in his works, which are never quite the same each visit. These works are bursting with activity and the buzz of city living, packed with people moving about their daily lives, yet Tor is able to provide a moment of tranquility away from the circus. They are love letters to London, where the artist has spent most of his life, seen from a new angle which celebrates the beauty of the city. Originally born in Yorkshire, Andrew Tor moved to London in 1963 to study painting at Wimbledon School of Art, and he has lived and worked in the capital ever since. He has recently exhibited at Boundary Gallery, Bedford Gallery, Cable Street Studios, Northcote Gallery, Oliver Contemporary, Moore Galleries, and at the Oxo Tower. In 2022, he was selected for the New English Art Club Annual Exhibition and the British Art Prize Special Commendation. His works are in collections in the UK, Europe, and in the US. He is currently represented by Oliver Contemporary Gallery in London. Andrew Tour and Gemma Pepe, thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. Hello. What, what a lovely yeah. intro. Thank you. So, Andrew, you've lived in London for an impressive 36 years and you still find it inspiring. What brought you to London from Yorkshire and what has kept you there and inspired? All oh, right, big question. Um, 
I came to London originally just um, for practical reasons that I uh, managed to get onto the fine art painting course at Wimbledon, 1983. I'd, I'd already got the painting book by the time I was in um, the fifth year, what they now call year 11, I think. And I was pretty serious about what I was doing. And I, I kind of, you can't, you couldn't do that thing in, in, in South Yorkshire, in, certainly back in 1983, um, if you were serious about it. The, the industry, the kind of, you know, where it was happening was obviously in London. I had, I don't know how far to go back with this, I had a um, I had an amazing art teacher at school called Ray Worsdale, who's um, still around um, and still painting, amazing guy. And he kind of took me under his wing a little bit and, and kind of, you know, I come from a, you know, a normal South Yorkshire family, working class, born in a pit village and all that, with that over-egg and the um, lowliness of it. So things like art and creativity weren't really celebrated where I was from uh, and Ray kind of opened out that world a, a bit for me and kind of opened the door a little bit and, and, and let me peek through and I thought hello I'll have a bit of that please so he used to lend me like Ornette Coleman records and you know like kind of oh listen to this and you know you should be looking at this and he was amazing and I think he was as happy for me to be there and interested as I was for him to let me discover this stuff. So it was, it was, it was great. We had a really good relationship. I spent all my time at school in the art room, all that sort of stuff. So I knew I kind of had to get away if I wanted to do this thing. And I got to Wimbledon and I know I've, I've kind of lived around Southwest London ever since that time. Uh, I think like lots of people who move into the capital, you kind of get to, you, you get to understand and, and be comfortable around your kind of neck of the woods. And coming from South Yorkshire, a tiny little village, to the big city and the change in attitude, that people celebrated creativity and culture in a way that they didn't. Where I was from was, was just fantastic. And I kind of felt at home when I first arrived, I suppose, kind of found my little tribe. And I still feel like that, you know, after all this time, I, I really like, I, anybody who lives in London will tell you this, if you drive across one of the bridges at night or, or whatever, and you kind of look left and right, and you think, well, this is not bad, this. This, is, this is quite a beautiful city. I think there's more than that as well, you know, I think there's, beyond the creativity, I like the attitude in London in a way that, there's lots and lots of nice people in Yorkshire, obviously, <laughs> before I, I get done for slander, but, but you know, there's that kind of... Um, especially back in 1983, kind of racism and sexism were kind of, uh, uh, without getting too heavy about them, and, I, and uh, we're just like kind of normalised and casual. And, and I, even at that young age, uh, it's not my bag. And, and I quite like the way people thought progressively there. You know? So Gemma, you're the founder of Art on a Postcard. And for those who don't know, it's an incredible initiative which raises funds for the Hepatitis C Trust by auctioning unique donated postcards from a wide range of artists and creatives. Why did you decide to open the AOP Gallery and why now? So we're not, we're not actually only raising money for the Hepatitis C Trust anymore. We're, we're doing War Child at the moment. We did Choose Love last year and... We're doing a hospice at the end of the year, that and that's an aid of my father because they helped me take care of him at home when he died last year. So I wanted to do something for him, for them. Also, I don't know, yeah, but the Hepatitis C Trust was always meant to close because that was the idea. Not many charities open with a view to close because the idea was that we would 
solve the problem of hepatitis C. And we kind of have. I mean, it, we're getting to the point where it's not a public health risk anymore. When we started it, I was not a founder member, but I've certainly there right, you know, from pretty much the beginning. To, it opened in 2002. I've been there since 2005. And um, you had to do heavy, heavy, heavy chemo. There was such a there was such ignorance around it. Da da da. Now you just have to take a few pills. I mean, it's not you know, it's just a case of like finding the people that got it. So so you know, while I've been building up art on a postcard, I've been looking for other charities to support. But also, I've built up a huge like database of both artists and buyers. So it just made sense. It just made it makes sense. You know, I mean, it's not, it really isn't that simple. <laughs> I've got some artists, I've got some buyers, <laughs> but it, you know, but there is something in that. And I've also wanted to do, you know, I'm interested in, in, in galleries. I'm interested in shows. I'm interested in, you know, looking at one artist and uh, I really like Andrew's work. Andrew, when he first did out on a postcard he sent us a nocturne and it went for 800 pounds a little postcard nocturne and you know everyone loved them and so you know that makes sense and also yeah I'm currently working with an artist Mandy Payne who we're, we're doing a show from scratch so all that's really interesting I come from like my father was a painter so it's it's all kind of like second skin for me really uh, to 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 want to work in this world, so yeah. Love Mandy's work, by the way, amazing. It's great. Mm. Do you know it, Louise? Yeah, you showed me a photo actually when we met up uh, a few months ago. And she's South Yorkshire. Oh, is she? Yeah, yeah, she is. Yeah. She used to work in the health centre in uh, uh, in the village that I was born in. How how weird is that? That's very odd. Did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> also, Andrew does these urban night scenes in the you know green spaces she does urban like brutalist buildings and so that's a kind of connection as well mm. not not conscious but you know yeah and are you mostly going to be doing pop-up exhibitions yeah 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 except I would be interested in in doing what Delphinian Gallery did and like just like taking over a space in the West End there's so many empty spaces you know and just taking it over for a while seeing how that goes doing it like an exhibition a month or you know whatever some group shows what I really really want to do is uh some graduate shows I'm really interested in graduates and supporting graduates and you know there's some amazing work we do actively look for graduates we've famously uh are on a postcard I say famously because I always say it it's not famous but um <laughs> Antonia <laughs> Antonia Showering we met her at art school she her first uh work went for 75 quid I think and then the last thing she did for us went for 3,000 because now she's she did an online show with White Cube during the pandemic but she's also with Timothy Taylor and she's had a solo show I haven't had anything from her since her solo show because she's recently had a baby but I'm sure I will because we're good friends now so so yeah so and and check out White he was at, graduated from the state a couple of years ago. His work is incredible. He's just been taken on by, I can't remember what the name of the gallery is actually, but um, then in a, The War Child at the moment, I've got mixed in with like Christina Qualls and Louis Hallowell. I've got Selena Scott, who has just graduated from the Slade and who does this lovely 
what I came across of her was this um, triptych of these black men, sort of use of Charisky was like, it's, she's brilliant. I really love her work. So um, yeah, I'd like to do something with graduates. Yeah, I think it's really important to support graduates when they first come out of university because not many people do. Um, and if they are taken on by a gallery, it's, it can sometimes be a really uh, messy transaction and kind of not work in their favour. I think that if graduates have got like people actually supporting them longer term, it's a really important thing. What do you mean by that? Sorry, I know I'm not the interviewer, but can I ask you, what do you mean it's a messy transaction? So a lot of mid-range galleries will take on an artist um, like fresh from university and they will almost manipulate their creativity. Like I've seen it a lot of times where they will say, you know, don't work like this, just work like this. And they will encourage them to work in just one particular way. And then their career takes an absolute nosedive. And it's just, it's so disheartening because... Oh, yes. The graduates, they kind of don't have that experience to be like, actually, no, my artwork is going in this direction. If you don't like it, then I've got loads of time so I can just go with another gallery. Mm. They, you know, they don't they don't have that knowledge or experience to be able to say no. And so they just say yes. Sounds like the music industry when they sign a band and then don't know what to do with them. And then they just keep them like don't release anything. And then by the time they kind of like get rid of them, they're out of favour. Yeah, it's exactly the same mechanic. It really is. It's like that guy who who didn't sign the Beatles because they weren't commercial or whatever at EMI. I, you know, I, I, it, it definitely happens in in galleries where it's like, oh, these are these are set, this is what sells. Let's do this, yeah. and uh, it's the death of creativity. Exactly that. So, Andrew, you had a serious accident which severed all the tendons and nerves in your right hand through surgery therapy and determination you were able to return to painting which is just an incredible feat do you feel that you're painting as you were before the accident and is there anything you've had to sacrifice in terms of your technique similarly is there anything that you have discovered a serendipitous moment which arose from the accident uh, should I tell you what happened? It's pretty gruesome. I do, yeah. So at the time, I when would this be? The early 90s, and I had a studio in Cable Street in the East End near Commercial Road. I think the studio block's still going. And I was painting every day and to make ends meet because, <laughs> well, if you know any artists, you know that they're not the richest people in the world. And uh, to make ends meet, I was working in a restaurant in, in the southwest of London. And... During a shift, I was carrying a couple of plates up some stairs, some fairly rickety stairs, and I fell over and went forward. I didn't, I'm not sure to this day what happened, but I tried to stand up by pushing myself up with my hand and realised I was in a lot of pain. And then I looked at my hand and one of the plates had broken. This is really grim now. <laughs> one of the plates had broken in two and, and I, my, my wrist had gone straight into the, uh, into the ceramic, which... I've seen, I mean, it's just, it was like glass and it basically took out all the connective tissue on my wrist to, on the right hand. Cut all the tendons, all the nerves and the artery, which was fun. I mean, really, really grim. And I, I honestly thought my time was up because I was, I was kind of bleeding out. I mean, it was like, sorry, it is really grim, but, and I realized in the ambulance on the way to the hospital that it occurred to me to try and work out whether, what the damage was by trying to bend my fingers and nothing worked. And it was a really, 
I, I mean, it's funny I can remember that point because it, you know, you know, when you have a serious accident, there's you know, time slows down and people say, I don't quite know what happened. You kind of go into panic and, and shock. And, you, and it's a bit of a blur, but I do remember being in the ambulance and thinking, that's not good. And thinking, you paint pictures, that's what you do. And, and like, what happens now? I mean, with everything else going on, the fact that I was still alive, I was, uh, you know, uh, I was, I got through it anyway. And um, I was lucky enough to go to Roehampton Hospital, which was one of the kind of the old was one of the old RAF hospitals for, for plastic surgery for pilots when they came back. So they, they connected it all back up incredibly, apart from my thumb. So I had no opposition, which was weird. Uh, not weird, but <laughs> awful. So I couldn't hold anything. Um, and uh, I was in hospital with a guy who'd, who was a, a, a woodcarver, like Grinling Gibbons woodcarver, you know, like kind of really intricate stuff. And he had a similar accident about um, 20 years earlier and his hands were really clawed you know like they didn't have the technology when it had happened to him and he'd carried on to be a woodcarver with these kind of these very poorly hands and and honestly that was like a lesson to me in the hospitals right if that guy can do it I can do it and I just kind of got on with it really I had to have counseling PTSD counseling really and, and uh, as well as physical therapy because I didn't realize it really really got to me um, and I, I still, to this day, I, I would encourage anybody to to go into counselling generally for life. But also, you know, I said earlier about coming from sort of South Yorkshire, we did do counselling in South Yorkshire, you know. <laughs> and so even at that age, I was, it was a kind of mystery to me. But whatever the mechanism was, it really worked and it really helped. And uh, uh, they eventually connected my thumb up as well. And I initially started to work with computers. I learned so how to use a mouse with my left hand and to this day I can't use a mouse with my right hand and I started to get I mean I just wanted to make things I wanted to continue the creativity and the visual stuff you know working with visual art and it seemed to me that that computers were the way to go and I I actually ended up becoming quite proficient enough in that that I actually got a job doing graphics as well so that meant I didn't have to work in restaurants anymore too, which was good. Yeah, I was obviously allergic in some way to restaurants. They didn't like me. So yeah, I worked in graphics for a while. And then eventually I kind of picked up a brush and thought, I, I wonder what, whether I, could, I can do this. And absolutely true. I, I thought I'd better go back to square one because it was kind of about dexterity. It's not about, um, let's say not about creativity and not about trying to analyze the world or to or to create something extraordinary I wanted to know whether my hand would work absolutely straight up and I put an apple on a shelf I thought the simpler you know one of the simplest things you can imagine an apple with kind of this ball thing on a shelf I just got a canvas and, and tried to paint it but it was okay uh, my hand is okay now so and it's not really affected my dexterity I can I, I still write with my right hand uh, I use a mouse with the left I shave with my left hand and but but for some reason I can uh, I'm fine with the right hand did my art practice change it did definitely I having been through three years at art college and, and worked in Cable Street and had some shows and, uh, and that you, you kind of become immersed and steeped in in art practice and uh, and you develop in a way that, that that you you push the boundaries of what you're doing into let's say you know, you want to do something original and um, hopefully that, that nobody's thought of before. Everybody kind of 
know, but 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 you're really trying to push what you can do with with paint. And and so painting was when I left college as well was was in a really good shape. I think they were, they're painting had kind of had a bit of a renaissance. You got that kind of the German and the American neo expressionists were 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 doing well. Um, there was the Glasgow School, you know, painting which had kind of died a little bit in the 70s and 80s and become much more conceptual and probably much more like it is now is uh, I don't know yeah it kind of had a renaissance so um, it was a good time to paint and and one of the big things was that kind of open narrative painting like groups of figures in space probably a little bit political as well like, and big stuff everybody was painting big then uh, it was the only way to go <laughs> so when I kind of had to rehabilitate I'd been out of that world for a while and I it didn't feel comfortable enough to step back into it anybody who paints will tell you that if, if you paint constantly you kind of get a, a head of steam up and, and you, you I can go to the studio now and I kind of I won't know what I'm going to do exactly but I'll know what needs working on and I'll know why because you've kind of got this rolling ball of intention I suppose and I, I'd lost that and I just felt uncomfortable I could have picked it up somewhere but I would have felt like a charlatan, picking it all up and kind of doing this very, very difficult kind of open narrative stuff. So honestly, I, I, I just went straight back to painting figurative things in space to see whether my hand would work. And, and, and what came out of it is kind of my practice now. I mean, that's incredible that they were able to connect everything back up and that's it. You can just use it as, as you were before. Yes, yeah. It's an inspiring story as well. It really is. It's good for other people to hear. Yeah. You know, that you can triumph like that over adversity or whatever. You're a painter, your hand got severed, you know, (laughs) to bits and you still paint and you're having a show. Yes. Yeah. And I'm I'm pleased that I can, I'm sitting here talking to you, telling you that story. It could have, Mm. it could, it might have been. Could have died. Yes. Yeah. That's the, obviously, (laughs) that's the worst scenario, I suppose. But, um, uh, and I'm not, and I'm not only that, but I'm I'm able to paint. I think as well. I had I was talking earlier about being at school. I think that most most painters will tell you this. There's the reason why you get into it. You kind of get encouraged as a kid. You, if you can draw something, you know, by your teachers, if you can kind of make something look like something in that very very basic, unsophisticated way, you get praise for it, and that's the thing that you kind of that gives you a bit of worth, and you think, all oh, right, I'll I'll keep doing that, and you do it in your spare time, and you kind of get involved and then you realize what art is and you you realize that you can do this as a career and I was kind of like that and I had so I had a decent facility for being able to draw things I don't think everybody has that I don't think everybody who paints has that and it's not necessary I don't think to be to be particularly dexterous at that but that was my thing and so to go from nearly losing my right hand to getting back into it that kind of has fed into it. And I, my work is more precise, maybe is the wrong word, but but it's like kind of, I, I enjoy the fact that I can, I've a facility for for rendering objects on a flat surface, I suppose. That's... You, you're a good draftsman. And that's really funny. Well, it's not funny, but I disagree with you about it not being necessary. I think it's absolutely vital for a painter, anyone that calls himself an artist, to be a good draftsman. Yeah, I think there's a difference between being, you could be slick with it. I mean, I think Cezanne's an amazing example of it where you look at his early stuff. I mean, he kept his hand-eye coordination is is horrific. I, I, part of me would like to see an essay about how bad he is at painting. 
and what 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 he how he overcame that and and, and what he did with it is amazing and it's a bit like listening to bob dylan sing he, you know he can't sing but he will go through that and that's what makes him extraordinary that's what i meant yeah that's actually a really good way of explaining that and so andrew what is it that interests you in oil paint and do you find that you're continuously exploring the medium it's an odd question in a way for me because I, I, that's, that's kind of what I do. I, I default go to that. And also, I think there was a time when you kind of wouldn't ask somebody that who painted because that's kind of what art was. It's interesting that now art practice is lots and lots of different things. And I think for very good reasons. It is a weird thing to use oil paint. It's a bizarre, archaic, you know, kind of what, a, what an odd thing to think that that's the way to mediate the world and show other people that that's what you think of it and that you know uh, and trying to express with this stuff when you've got you could use any material and, and it's great that art has moved on and you can use that i went with a very very old mate of mine to see the sicker show at the tape recently and we looked at the show and thought oh that's that, you know obviously a terrific painter that's really good and on the walk out we passed you know that procession that was in tape britain i think hugh locke's pr- procession and it's a load of mannequins walking from right down that central aisle in the middle of the tape. And it's it's remarkable. It's, it's brilliant. And the friend I was with said, what the hell's that all about, though? You know, I mean, it's not painting, is it? And all I could think was, how can you say that? As somebody who, you've got this pigment that's mixed with linseed oil. And, <laughs> and you think that that's a normal and natural way to, to express yourself? It's a really weird thing to do, if you think about it. And, and actually, to use... You know, those kind of ready-made things that Hugh Locke was using is, is almost much more... That's what you should do. It's funny how art practice has changed, that, that that's now a thing. But I, I do like painting in oils because, in a basic way, I, quite, I like all that kind of daubing. It's play. Kind of if I'm in the studio and I'm sometimes doing some of the... You, you can do this in the middle of a painting. You know you've got some donkey work to do where you've got to make a pass on a painting. You know, it might be glazing something. It might be that you need to put a certain amount of elements in that you you hope will move it on in a particular way, but it takes patience and time and it might take the whole day. And in the middle of it, I get, you know, you kind of think, oh, God, you know, halfway there, I can do this, I can do that. And then I've got to pinch myself and think, this is great. I am playing, I'm in a studio. I've got a turntable in the studio, so I'm listening to records and drinking coffee and I'm painting. And it's a, it, as a practice, it's a very, very lovely thing to do. Can I ask you a question? Why oil as opposed to acrylic? Because acrylic doesn't fade. Like what I love, I've got a John Rag and I can stick it in the sun. It doesn't fade. But all my dad's pictures, I have to draw all the blinds down during the day. So. Oh, right. Do you know what? I didn't know that there was an archive issue with oil paint. I, I, that's what you mean. You, that they, they, The sunlight will, will get them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's not the only reason. But why oil as, a, as opposed to acrylic? What What's the big difference? I... When I came back to working with paint after the accident, I genuinely made a, a conscious decision to use oil paint because of its history and because of um, it is bloody difficult stuff to work with and it's messy and, you know, it takes forever to dry and I'm sure you've seen people try and have a go with it and you may well have had a go yourself in a way that, that, that it, it gets muddy and, and grim very, very quickly if you don't know what you're doing. And I like the process of being able to wrangle that into what you want it to be in a way that acrylic is uh, much more forgiving and it dries quickly you can paint over it and I have used lots of acrylic in my time but I've just made that decision that 
along with the kind of this the history of it i think there's a Walter Benjamin talks about that kind of aura of paintings of the work of art and I, I honestly think that oil using oil is kind of part of it and I can't quite I, that's probably a bit shallow and a bit you know like kind of if, if the material does the job then you should bloody use it but I a little bit me kind of feel some affection for it <laughs> yeah yeah sure it's like using a, a ink pen instead of a biro I guess yeah and I, I like the smell of it and all that baloney you know like um well, my studio's in the house, and I don't think my wife's not that keen on the fact that I, I love it. I came to visit and... you the other day, and it was like walking back into my dad's studio. It just was like, oh, this is the smell of home. Yes, yeah, yeah. And all that's uh, maybe uh, a, a bit nostalgic, but it's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Definitely. It sounds like you like the challenge of it as well. Like that, that I feel like acrylic is maybe a bit too easy whereas oil paint like you said you've got to wrestle it into being you've got to know exactly all the techniques you're doing so that you retain all the color it sounds like you quite like that little challenge yes and that's not to take anything away from anybody who paints with acrylics because they like I say I use them and uh, if your intention's wrong then you ain't going to be able to paint whatever your material you pick and I absolutely love you know, lots of painters who work with acrylic and uh, and all sorts of mediums, really. But um, it's just, it just personally, it's for me. I like it. It's not like a conservative reason that I I think it. I like using it. It's more a sort of adventure of using something that's got that background of history. So your other passion is motorbikes, and you've managed to combine this with your <laughs> love of art. And you use your motorbike to zip around London, taking photos, which you then go on to make paintings from. I found a quote from you where you said, this is the first time I've used the lens flare I get on some of the research photos, liking the dreamy remove this adds, which is an aim of all these night paintings and how these abstract out nicely. How faithfully do you work from your research photos? Right, the motorbike thing, firstly, it's, uh, although I've got a lovely bike, but I'm definitely not a bike enthusiast. I, I It's one of those bikes that, oh God, people of a certain age come up and say, oh, that's nice, mate. Oh yeah, has that got the uh, Amal carburettors and all that? And all I can think is, I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> I love riding the thing, but genuinely, <laughs> I find all that motorcycle enthusiasm a bit weird. But it is definitely brilliant for what I do anybody who rides a bike or even you ride a bicycle getting around London is just a, a damn sight easier and I can get anywhere very quickly and and if I'm working at night which obviously I do for the nocturnes I can make it from our place down in Tooting up to Victoria Park at night with no problem and I and actually if it's a nice night I really enjoy it it's just great being out at that time with that kind of purpose I, in some romantic kind of way I suppose yeah, the bike's great. The photographs, I only use to map the light line around the commons. If you go to Clapham Common, it's it's a very busy kind of hub. So the A3 comes past it, and it's it's busy all night. And it's that gives it that kind of characteristic. So you get this particular constellation of lights on it. And I think it's important for me, when especially when all the paintings... They're very similar in in format, obviously. They are lots of sky, lots of ground, and then this kind of horizon line with trees. And it's important to me, and I think important for the work, to be specific to something. I I wouldn't want people to think that these are general kind of, you know, oh, the the commons look a bit like this. And, you know, like that looks, you know, if you go to Peckham Rye, it kind of looks a bit like 
clap them so they're interchangeable and all that. I mean, it's not, I'm not trying to paint kind of scenes of what it's like being on the common. I mean, they, they need to be specifically about those places. And those constellations on Clapham are busy. You go to Wandsworth Common and, and sometimes I like two or three lights. And so something different happens. And then something that means something different happens to the what I call, kind of call the abstract end of those paintings, where they're not representations to some degree of those commons. But that I, I'm in the studio at that point and I'm just messing with paint. And I'm trying to get it to do something that, that's an equivalent of looking at the sky and the ground at that time, in that kind of low light thing. I just think it's really interesting. It's, I've said it elsewhere, and it's in the statements that I've given you for the show and stuff, but they are, there's a weird thing that happens when, when the light rebounds back off the city into, into the night sky, is that, is that it's, the sky is full of shit. I mean, it's really full of like these little motes of pollution and dust and rain. And as this light escapes and goes up into the sky, it catches this stuff and bounces back. So if you've got lots of red lights and, and that kind of lovely sodium orange light, and then the, the kind of white lights that um, are LED kind of lights, what comes back is, if you really, really look at it, it's astonishing. And it's limitless and, and amazing. And I kind of want to reproduce that on and show people that and show myself that on, on these paintings, which which obviously on a painting is hair's breadth the depth of it is nothing and I've got to get that depth so which is why I use that glazing technique which has been great as a process to to kind of make that work but all that's about paint and it's a and it's not so when I take the photographs I'm not really looking at the the color of the sky I don't reproduce I don't look at a photograph and think right how do I make that work because the photos don't do it justice they they are just flat pigment you know or, or if I'm looking on a iPad at the, the image it's just it's I'm not trying to remake that photograph it's just a light line I'm plotting sorry I waffled on a bit there but um it's really interesting and so it is interesting can you tell me more about the glazing aspect because there was another quote that I found where you said the physicality of the paint is important and so it feels like you're trying to kind of activate different senses in your practice and I think the glazing is a part of that it is absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I, that's that's all by accident, oddly. You know, painters that work in particularly kind of impasto way and with gestural marks, I think it's it's easy to understand that there there is some physicality to the painting that they've made. You can see those marks as kind of physical, kind of 3D. The, the, the paintings have a kind of topography, like a kind of, if you look closely, it's kind of lumpy and, and whatever. And in somebody like Frank Auerbach or Leon Kossoff, you, it's ridiculously bumpy. And it, that physicality and the tension between the image that's being made and this lovely physicality is is what painting's all about and it's most basic in a way you've got an object there that you know we can all see but it ha- it has a relationship to something represented unless it's a purely abstract painting that the the glazing thing works in the same way it's just a little bit more subtle in the sense that you you can kind of think well these are flat things so you've lost the physicality of it but they are really shiny I mean, it's just a, a byproduct of using lots of linseed oil and, and various kind of mediums that you can get available now to help kind of glaze, use glazing. And you get the sheen off it is part of the thing. It's an object. It's uh, it's another kind of richness that's not thick paint. It's It's got another physicality. And I think that that tension between the image that you're looking at, which is, uh, you know, the sky and the ground, it, is 
plays off against the fact that it's it's just paint on canvas and that tension is 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 kind of key to all painting you know you're going to be grateful that you of this glazing in later years because i have a feeling that it will preserve your paintings better you know we've got a problem with some of my dad's paintings that are um flaking it's one of some of them from the 50s but also i was staying with this uh lady a couple of weeks back who is an art historian and writes books about artists and she was she told me that they had to completely restore Hockney's picture of um Aussie Clark because the whole thing had deteriorated so you know just from a point of view of you know posterity that I think your glazing might really be a good thing. Let's hope so yeah yeah again it's just a, a byproduct it's not something I meant to do and it, it's funny that it's not used by painters in a way you're not taught to do that at art school it's a technique that's I mean it's ancient but it's more especially the way I use it it's more understood to be part of kind of you know pre 20th century painting you know like pre-18th century painting even that kind of that method you're not taught to do it and there's a there are there are a few people who do do it and, um, I remember seeing some I think I'd be at the National Gallery and seeing some landscapes might have been Clou Lorena or, so, or, or whatever and, and, just, and, and genuinely I thought that's how to do those common that commons thing that you because I, I I walked across those commons for years, at night, and I anybody who lives in London who's work, works late or has been out to a club or a pub or whatever, and you can't get a cab because nobody wants to come south of the river. So I'd seen that space and I kind of knew that that sky stuff was interesting, and I couldn't think of a way to do it. I genuinely this is I mean, it sounds like I, I've kind of made this up post you know like oh look, and and I I saw these Claude Lorraine paintings and I thought. That, that's it. That's how you do it. That's how you get that depth. And what it does with glazing is you get that, if you paint a sheet of ultramarine glaze that's transparent so you can kind of see whatever the ground is underneath it, and then you paint a red glaze on top of that, you can see the red and the blue at the, at the same time, but they're, they're not mixed. It's not like a kind of, it, it doesn't make purple. It kind of, if you look closely enough, and that's exactly what what happens when you look at the sky. It can look kind of bronze and indigo and, you know, that, that kind of weird. I mean, the weirdest ones are those when it looks bright orange. You know, it's like the cloud ceilings at a particular level that it, it just bounces off that dirty sodium light, which is really bright, bright orange. And I do get people saying they'll see them for the first time, the paintings, and they'll go, they'll go, all oh, right, you, you've kind of um, been creative with the sky colouring, which is... Fair enough, nothing wrong with kind of pushing the colour in, in that way. But I'm not. And then I'll see them kind of three weeks later and they'll say, oh, I was out, I saw I, I saw the sky and it was your, it was that weird bright orange. It does do that. And, it's, uh, and I think that's interesting. It says something about London, says something about pollution. It says something about the way that we live, I think, in, in, in the 21st century. And they're, they're definitely urban paintings and not nightscapes out in the country. They're not like kind of landscapes in that way. Do you see yourself as a landscape painter? Because earlier and in the promotional video, you also mentioned the abstraction of your work. So do you see yourself as an amalgamation between the two? Absolutely, yeah. I think it'd be quite rare for somebody to, to even if they solely painted landscapes, that they would say, I'm a landscape painter because it's, it's limiting. It just, you've already limited yourself in a way. I mean, I, I think if I've spoken to somebody 
in that conversational thing where they'd oh you're a painter so what, what kind of paintings do you do and I, I I'd probably start with the landscape because it's it's a way in but but no not really I, I don't I think it'd be kind of limiting so I I, I'm definitely interested in the city. I mean, I, I work on a lot of... Uh, I've got another series of, of paintings about the Thames where I've shifted the horizon, which is quite low on the nocturnes because I'm concentrating on the sky and I've shifted the horizon right up to the top. So actually it's about the water. And it kind of does the same thing, but in the opposite way. Water's another thing that's... I mean, what a, what a weird thing to want to paint because it, it won't stop moving. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> And you can't paint it statically. You can't paint it, just reproduce it in a, in a kind of photographic way because it, it has movement and rhythm and things like that. But it just looks, you know, kind of sludgy if you try and just copy a photograph. So it's kind of got that. That's interesting. So I am interested in the city space because, I, I, you know, I feel some connectedness towards it. And I also think that I, it says something to other people who, sh- who I share that space with. I can express something about that space that we all live in. And hopefully by that, by dint of doing that, is it, it share something with people that, that see them. And, and it, I'm pretty sure that works. You know, people say, oh, yes, I've seen that. And that's, oh, my God, look at that. There's a connectedness with it for us all, which is which is good. The abstract thing is is kind of front and centre with those nocturnes. It really is. I mean, if you turn them on the sides, they look quite like kind of dark barnet humans from 1960 or something like that, where you know, they look like colour zips. They look like abstract paintings. I can see the reference into abstract expressionism in there, like proper old school, you know, kind of stuff. And I was talking to a friend the other day, a painter, and, and we were talking about that. There's a kind of line between representation and and what they call abstraction, you know, like kind of purely non-representational painting. And all painters work on that line somewhere. You basically stick your flag in the ground on that line and it can change. It can change while you're making the painting. It can change because you want to go and explore something else uh, about the world. Every painter works on that line. You know, there's, I suppose it's, the, again, it's the physicality of the painting on one side and, the, and, and something that you're representing on the other. And some people sit right on top of the, I'm not representing anything part of the line and, and in that camp. And that's great. And I... I think it's important that painters understand that I know that lots of painters look at other other people's work and say, I don't like that because, because I think they've got, they, they're in the wrong place on that line. The world would be a really boring place if, if, if we didn't have people all over that line. You know, like I, I think there's something that there's some amazing merit in, in super realist stuff. I think there's some, some amazing merit in obviously in, in, in purely abstract stuff. It's not what interests me, but I think that, you can pick where Cezanne sits on that line. You could pick where Andy Jekka, Akinuli Crosby sits on that line. You could pick where uh, Jenny Packer sits on that line. And I've got my line, my bit, if you like, and I kind of go around there. Sometimes it gets really figurative. And I, I actually quite like it. And I think, well, I can, I can just leave it there and see what happens and, and then work on something else. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I kind of, what does that do? Sometimes it goes in directions that I don't quite want it to. And I think, but, but just leave it and see what happens. And then two weeks later, I think, oh, that's quite interesting. You know, it's kind of more abstracted than normal, or it's more figurative than normal. And it's, I tell you the other thing that's amazing. Is sometimes I'll do that, and I think it's, that looks too landscapey. It looks too scenic. 
And then somebody will come into the studio who's a collector and, and have a look around and say, I, I bloody love that one. <laughs> and I think, what? It's, and I, I, yeah, okay, fine. Great. You know, they've seen in that on something that they, they want to see and like. And at that point, it's kind of out of my hands. It's all out of your hands That's once it goes out into the world. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you invite someone in your studio as well. You know, those little secret yeah. projects that you're working on yeah. and suddenly someone yeah. comes across that and you sees hide. them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, when Gemma came, I've got some, I've got some monsters here, you know. Like, and I think it's really important for us, anybody who's a painter, anybody in any creative practice, to step out of their comfort zone and kind of do things that they wouldn't normally, and really go for it. Um, you don't need to show anybody, don't, you know, apart from Gemma when she comes around. <laughs> and I, I'm quite a political animal, and obviously politics at the moment is incredibly grim. And, you know, I, I watch the news and think, why am I doing landscapes of the commons? When not, what I should be doing is tearing into politicians, you know, in a way that a lot of painters do, you know, in that kind of narrative way. Seriously, it makes me as angry as anybody else. And I think that maybe that's a way I can help it and do something. No, but you can also help by, you know, if we're all tearing into the politicians. Where can we go to sort of get away from that? We need to also switch off and look at a landscape, you know, so... Yes. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't diminish them. It's just rather, it's that anger, I suppose. And I, I, I imagine it doesn't matter what discipline you're in, you know, not even creative disciplines, but just something you think, oh, my God, I've got to do something about this. You know, mm. That's all, I suppose. I won't show anybody any of those. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of leads on quite well to my next question, because I do think when it goes off in a different direction, when you create your monsters and it, creates like an evolution you know things can't stay stagnant you need to constantly be pushing it and testing and seeing what works so your nocturne series they began in 2015 do you see an end or an evolution to them at the moment no that but that might change i think what's good about this show is that when you see them on the wall like that it gives you a an idea of what I'm aiming for better than when one looks at a single image. And I, they're not meant to be hung together. I, I, I have sold them as triptychs and diptychs to, to people. And I think because they kind of get that idea, and it's a bit like, I suppose, like um, Monet's paintings of Rouen Cathedral or, or Haystacks or, or whatever. They, that series, irrespective of, of, of what one thinks about... Um, impressionism that you can really see that he's looking for something there and he's kind of going for it by seeing that series develop and I'm kind of still in the middle of that not kind of I really am uh, and I does that great line that Beckett said about creation is that you you will always fail nothing will ever be perfect you will always fail and and what you should do is go back and fail better and there's a lot of that going on that's to make an equivalent of that space on on those commons is always going to fail because you, I'm working on a 2D surface with with paint. That's 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 all I'm doing, and 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 it'll never be, you know, what I should do is is take a load of people up to the common and say, look at that, <laughs> that's what it is, and then and then there you've got it. But I'm trying to make this equivalent, and and hopefully, in doing that, learn something about us and the way we see things and 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 stuff, and and that's not been exhausted, and I don't suppose it ever will. What else is good is that is that I genuinely don't know what the paintings are going to end up like, and that keeps you interested. And I think that's quite, that comes as a bit of a surprise to some people who who see them, especially when you see them online or whatever. You know, where you can't see the physicality and you can't see the the nuance of them, 
and they're flattened out on, on screens is that I think there's an assumption sometimes that I knew what I was doing and I'm just trying to reproduce the look of this thing. And it's hopefully more than that. And, and if I was just trying to do that, I'd be bored and I would have stopped doing them a long, long time ago. There'd be a formula. And I mean, you just can't sustain doing that. You genuinely go out of your mind. And, and I don't think at the moment, I, I, you know, there might come a time when I think, oh, I've, <laughs> I've done that. That's great. And if nothing else new happens, I, you know, like kind of, uh, you just think, like, what's the point? But I go back to that thing. I, I, I genuinely don't know what they're going to turn out like. And, and um, easily the best ones are those that where I'm so surprised by what's happened. Where I can get that thing to happen where you can see the, the sky being kind of that golden bronze and red and blue and and all sorts of kind of stuff firing off and that they they change depending on the ambient light in the in the space that you're at i think is is lovely and I, it surprises the hell out of me sometimes it really does i think that that's what painting should be that's that should always be like like that and hopefully people understand that when they when they see them uh, in the show so the first time that you posted about this series on Instagram, it was an underpainting for Battersea Park. And you said, Leonardo said it, if you look upon an old wall covered with dirt or the odd appearance of some street stones, you may discover several things like landscapes, battles, clouds, uncommon attitudes. Under your tumultuous skies, there is a hive of activity. And I think this quote really summarizes what you're achieving with your work. And also, I've never heard that quote before, and I love it. Do you agree? And has this quote stayed with you throughout the series? That quote has stayed with me throughout my painting life. And I, I had a book, bizarrely, Ralph Stegman, the cartoonist, who worked with um, uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. He did a book on um, on Leonardo, and that quote was in there. And I probably read it when I was 15, and uh, and and bang, got it there. You know, it added up to, you know, it formed the foundations of the architecture of the way I think about painting. And I think that everybody should think about painting. Like I say, somewhere along that scale between representation and and abstraction you have that thing of seeing all manner of things inside the kind of gestural marks inside even in flat you know kind of hard-edged abstraction there there are things to see yes hopefully people see that in these paintings going back to the the ambient light sort of changing them I think is is part of that as well you know like there's always something to to look at it's a bit like looking into into a kind of uh, a fire in a hearth you're not entirely sure what what it is that attracts you to it but like kind of mesmeric kind of thing going on and I know that happens I can I've painted these for long enough that some of them I don't remember the process of painting them and they you get that kind of remove which is quite difficult as any painter will tell you you can never quite lose the fact that you did it and you see the problems that you encountered or the things that are wrong with it or the things that are blah 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 blah. you never see them like you look at other people's work but I've been doing this long enough that that some of them I I kind of I can come across them and think oh look at that I can hopefully like somebody who's viewing them for the first time I can get lost in them as well and think that does work it's very very difficult with your own work I promise you it's really really tough to see them afresh and, and what have you but what, like when they when they've been knocking around for for a while you kind of it helps it helps and I think yes yes um, what I intended is happening yeah. And so, Gemma, in our press release, you added, it isn't too far-fetched to say that Tor has invented his own version of neoclassical landscape painting with his nocturnes. Tell me why you think that and how Andrew achieves this. Okay, I'm sort of a bit embarrassed about that quote, to be honest, because neoclassical actually means something completely different. But, I mean, 
by that, what I meant was, so it's a modern scene, okay? It's it's a contemporary scene, but it's a timeless scene. And it's it looks like it could be painted by an old master, but in amongst all that, something that Theo said, in amongst just that little line of light, there's the hustle and bustle of everyday life. Now, if that's Clapham Common, then, you know, one of those big French houses used to be a hostel. So in amongst that, there's sort of, you know, all sorts of nefarious stuff going on, as well as, you know, whatever is going on in urban life. You know, there's like people having the happiest day of their life, people having the worst day of their life. So this, all this is sort of like encapsulated in, you know, it's probably been better if I'd said that. But so neoclassical, what I really wanted to say was that it looks like a traditional old master, but it's a completely contemporary painting. That's what I meant. But like I say, neoclassical actually does mean something else. Yeah, that, that does occur to me. And I kind of lent into that. I lean into it and embrace it a little bit because I can't ignore that that happens. Mm. I, I think that it leads to some people, especially other painters I've bumped into, assume that I'm going to be quite conservative about the way I, you know, what I think painting should be. Mm. You know, that thing where you definitely get that kind of tribe of, of figurative painters who are like, uh, I wish modernism had never happened. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, and and, for, and as for postmodernism, why? I order, <laughs> and and I, I don't. I really don't get that. I was brought up in that tradition, and I. What's great about now is that now we've had painters like Glenn Brown and you know John Curran's paintings, where they kind of they quote, you know, in, in John Curran's case, like a, that kind of Rococo kind of Watto thing, like painting from a, a previous era. And I think they both do it in a blank ironic postmodern way and I'm not trying to do that at all this is all just through the technique that I use I'm not trying to make a statement about that stuff it's just the best way to get the job done and to make that equivalent of what I'm looking at and what I'm what I'm interested in and like I say the byproduct of they look like those older paintings um, there's a guy called I, and I only learned this because I was doing the nocturnes thing just by honestly looking online because he's not a painter that anybody it, really cares about a guy called Atkinson Grimshaw <laughs> what a brilliant name he painted nocturnes in a kind of Victorian way and he, he's undoubtedly got the same interest in that sky thing I mean check him out after they are they're, they're curiously kind of uh, they look very Victorian so it's not necessarily the content that interests me but the fact that he was interested in that night sky thing and that glow thing is great that's I think if somebody was making those paintings now that would be very boring and, and quoting, if you like, earlier painting for almost comic effect as, as a painter, which does get used, you know, by serious painters. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If that's the intention, that's great. I love a lot of that stuff. But yeah, it's not like in the same way that, you, you know, those, those Whistler paintings of the sky, uh, nocturnes. I mean, they were they're probably the most famous nocturnes in art history of Whistler's, the rocket in the sky and all that sort of stuff. And they are proper modernist and they're beautiful things but curiously don't look like old paintings, look like paintings made now, whereas you're right, mine do, just by dint of that process, they do kind of quote, but I'm not trying to, I'm not after anything with that. I just, um, like I say, I'm going with it. it, is what it is. It is what it is. What more can you say to that? <laughs> that's like the ender, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so that's about, yeah, I was about to say that, that's such a good love island. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> way to end it, it's a sort of very contemporary... <laughs> You know, saying, isn't it? <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> so many references. 
<laughs> yes. Special yeah. painters. Love Island. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andrew, what do you enjoy most about your practice? I think anybody would enjoy enjoy doing it. Honestly, they'd kind of nuts and bolts of it. It's quite. Uh, I spoke earlier about being in a studio and uh, <laughs> with some decent music on and a full pot of coffee and 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 doing that. Genuinely, that's really really lovely. I. That's an interesting question. It really is. I don't know where I get the drive from to want to do it all the time. I don't need to be kicked out of bed in the morning to go and do it. And I, I don't, I've not really overanalyzed it. I mean, I know lots of people say that thing about that's my life depends on it and all that. It all sounds very dramatic and all that sort of stuff. And, but I don't know, there is, there, there is a bit of that. I can't, I worked for a long time as a graphic artist, as I said, and I worked in business and obviously there's lots of satisfying things about doing that, but I just spent most of it thinking I shouldn't be doing this. I should be painting. I'm, I'm not bad at it and I, I've got unfinished business and, and I kind of want to do that. When I pull it off, it genuinely feels terrific. It just, I, I, I don't know how else to express that. It's like kind of a... Like I say, I don't really overanalyze it. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. But I think if you can paint, if you are a, this sounds pretentious, if you are an artist, my, we were always told never to call my dad an artist, actually, to call him a painter. Yes. But if you yeah. are that way inclined, you are compelled to paint. My dad said as soon as he couldn't do it, I mean, he painted right up until about a month before he died just because he couldn't stand anymore. And, and he just, like, you're compelled to do it. That's it. That's what you, you know, you have to do it. And that, that that's just, it's, you know, without being, that's, there's no pretension in that at all. Yes. And I think that goes for people who would call themselves an artist and there's some, you know, anybody who wants to make anything really. And then the medium that you use doesn't matter. I, you know, if it's good and it's, it's rigorously done and it's beautiful, I, I, I love them all. I, there is that weird drive in, in some people and, and so strong actually that it's a bit weird when people say that they don't have any of that at all you know we're all different we're, you know that's you know yeah exactly we've all got to be different if we're all doing the same thing wow yes yeah <laughs> yeah so I don't know whether you're going to be able to answer this one but what do you find the most frustrating about your practice <laughs> wow oh god that's like being asked at an interview um what's, what, what faults do you have <laughs> um, <laughs> if I can go back to practicals again it's like, without sounding too prosaic I, there's not enough time to to kind of do stuff seriously and and you both know painters well enough that you know that how much time's taken up doing stuff that's not not painting and even if it is painting it's that you you then need to stretch up bloody canvases to do the next lot and I remember being a kid thinking um when you find out that painters have assistants thinking what a lazy son that's ridiculous why do you know God, oh and then when you actually get down to it you need somebody to do all the you need somebody to help you eventually so kind of a bit of time I've again practically I have that love-hate relationship with social media that, that all painters have got mainly Instagram which has been amazing in lots and lots of ways I think that, that anybody who really really grumbles about it has no idea what it was like when I was in working in Cable Street in the 80s and, and early 90s and nobody knew where I was or what I was doing and you had to get out there and, and, and actually physically bump into gallery owners and hustle and stuff like that in a way that's been made a lot easier by doing this and it's not ideal of course and I mean one of my bugbears with it is that it throws up you know, there are lots and lots of painters and there are lots that I absolutely love that work, that use Instagram and 
and and they make you want to go see their shows and uh, and I will follow them and stand by those people but it also breeds a lot of stuff that's a bit odd it's one thing that I have changed again since I was painting as, as a kid was that um, that NAF painting used to be like kind of those sunsets and things that you get on the railings at Bayswater on the Bayswater Road and people thought you know that that was art and so if you talk to them from where we were making things it was a bit like oh it's a bit weird what you know what you're doing that for and then it's changed in a way that's that's all gone and now there's a kind of weird thing with you know especially on Instagram with with people doing modernist in inverted commas kind of paintings of uh, and they usually along the lines of kind of William in, in this country kind of William Scott come you know that kind of broad abstracty landscapey things where people are making interesting marks and they're as naff and boring as the, as the sunsets on the Bayswater Road all those years ago but and people think that that's art I didn't agree and, more and it's not. There's, yeah. no, there's no rigor with it and it, I think it queers the pitch for people really making stuff that works I think it because people don't then know what you know they assume that you're part of that tribe and you're doing that and, and actually anybody who really cares about it it's trying to push it a little bit further than that and uh, and, and I, I don't know a bit little bit of me thinks well good on you you know what a nice thing to do but I think it it's kind of encroached on on our patch in a way that the, the sunsets never did it was always that stuff over there and it's naffness always seemed to be worn with pride <laughs> whereas this is quite difficult now you do get people who seem to make a decent living out of, out of sorry does that sound really bitter that's I'm, I'm, <laughs> sorry no I agree with you I agree yeah. with you. I agree. Yeah, yeah, especially if you're painting landscapes and you kind of, <laughs> and somebody comes sort of bundles you in and they mention the name, you think, oh, really? Uh, uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Instagram and social media have got a lot to answer for with that. And it's bound to happen. It's a bit like people gassing on Twitter, sitting in armchair warriors on Twitter, you know, with their political views. You get the same thing with, with people sort of saying, inadvertently this is what art is and, uh, and that's odd so it's kind of a curate's egg I suppose it's um... on the other hand we couldn't exist without it I mean Instagram is no, b- no. brilliant but aren't a postcard itself couldn't exist without well we mentioned Mandy earlier I wouldn't have known about Mandy's work if I'd not been on Instagram you know Mandy Payne uh, the, a whole group of guys working on there and with with amazing rigor and, and doing some terrific stuff and we wouldn't have known because they you know the art world much like the old record industry used to kind of promote things that they wanted to promote. And you would not hear about the interesting stuff unless you really, really dug it out. And this has made that easier in a way. Anybody can get post up there. And I think that's a great thing because talent will out, I suppose. You like to think so. It does. You see with uh, art and a postcard. I mean, unless, you know, yeah, there are some exceptions, but honestly, it's a meritocracy. I mean, you know, if you're good, you'll, 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 you'll get bid on. It's definitely made that art world a lot smaller, hasn't it? It feels like you can really keep in touch with artists all over the yeah. world and see Hopefully. regularly see what they're doing. Mm. It just kind of makes everything feel so much smaller and more accessible. And I've come across so many amazing artists mm. on Instagram. It's such a useful tool for me discovering mm. new artists and what people are working on. Yeah. Do either of you want to say anything else about the exhibition Nocturnes at Liminal Gallery? 
I would like to say come and see it. Yes, please. For sure. And to check out the catalogue. You can see the catalogue. So you can de- you can see it on our site, the AOP Gallery. You can see it on Liminal Gallery. I think come along. And I think also that it's a really good show because it's affordable and you're getting something properly good. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about it. I'm very excited. I'm really glad that it's the first one, just from my point of view, it's the first one that we're doing We've had, always had a great relationship with Yulu and me and Andrew go back. So it for me, it's just like this is such a nice like first show to do. Very pleased to be showing in, in a gallery called Liminal, uh, which I think is 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 a kind of key word on uh, for my work in a way that that that's with the nocturnes definitely. You know, it's that kind of uh, not just the space but the time between things and uh, uh, yeah, very fitting. Yeah, it's a very good name. Mm. It, it, mm. it would probably be better if it was a square gallery but you have to stick with a triangular <laughs> space I'm afraid <laughs> I love your gallery it's mental it's worth coming just to see the gallery that is also true it's very unique yeah. I prefer yeah. the word unique over mental <laughs> <laughs> sorry and um <laughs> and it's you know you get a good day trip to Margate exactly. got the yes. Turner opposite as well That's seafront right. Margate is lovely. Yeah, what a great town. Place at the moment. of the moment. It's a real buzz. There's so much going on. So, yes, definitely come down and see the show. So, that's all my questions. So, Andrew Tour and Gemma Pepe, thank you so much for joining me today on the Liminal Gallery podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you both. Thanks, Louise. Thank you for having us. Andrew Tour's exhibition, Nocturnes, continues until the 28th of May at Liminal Gallery, 34 Fort Hill in Margate. We're open Thursdays, 11 till 4 p.m., Saturdays, 11 till 3 p.m., and outside of these times by appointment. More information can be found on our website, www.liminal-gallery.com. Thank you so much for listening to Liminal Gallery Podcast with me, Louise Fitzjohn, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode featuring Cedric Christie, who has an upcoming solo exhibition entitled Infallible, opening on Saturday the 3rd of June from 5 till 8 p.m. All are welcome to join us. And the exhibition continues until the 29th of June. Bye for now.